Hello folks and welcome to the Antifada. This is a Sean KB solo episode, but I'm here with an excellent guest. That is Adam H. Johnson, uh, writer and also co-host of the excellent Citations Needed podcast. Adam, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What inspired me to finally have you on the podcast was uh, the reaction uh, starting a couple weeks ago when Joseph Robinette Biden uh, basically put, um, went forward with the Trump plan to withdraw American troops from our 20-year engagement in Afghanistan. And the media had an absolute meltdown. And in fact, watching these warmongering psychos uh, on TV talking about humanitarian uh, uh, intervention, about how we need to keep troops for another 20 years, about all the backbiting, about, you know, uh, incremental policies of, of both of the parties. It really made me feel like we were back in 2001 to 2003 when you had a kind of full court press on behalf of uh, the media in this country helping to drive us into war. So I felt mad in a way that I hadn't felt mad in maybe 16, 17, 18 years, which is impressive in this very cynical <laughs> age that we live in. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Biden's pulling out of Afghanistan and uh, the media reaction to it? Well, you know, anytime, you know, I think some people maybe who aren't too intimate with, with I guess, left-wing media analysis, they'll you say, like, the media does X, the media does Y, and they'll say, oh, well, there is no sort of media. There's kind of a thousand different voices who act kind of autonomously have, and sort of arrive at independent conclusions. Um, and it's difficult to kind of have a, a, an object lesson where you say, well, you know, if, if we did have a state-run media, as they say, a, a sort of top-down traditional state-run media model, it, it, and an alien sort of emerged on August 15th, 2021, and only watched CNN and MSNBC, uh, obviously Fox News, it would, it, and we asked them, like, do we have a state-run media? They would have absolutely zero way of distinguishing between that and state-run media. Yeah. It was almost uniform, 99% um, meltdown time with very similar messaging, very similar tropes, very similar uh, kind of uh, moralizing and editorializing, even by ostensibly straight reporters. And it was, I think it's sort of a good entry point into, into talking about sort of why that is. Yeah. Um, and forgive me if I'm repeating myself. I, I was just recently on Dan, Denver, uh, Dan Denver's podcast, The Dig, um, and I made some of, the, some of these similar points. I'll be repeating myself for those who listen to that. I apologize. <laughs> listen to both um, still, but yeah, go Not on. to self-plagiarize. Self but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I think there are many factors. I think the, the, the sort of primary factor is, um, you know, well, I'll, not the primary, but we'll start with number one. Number one is um, high-status pundits and journalists. You're kind of, you know, million follower types. You're Jake Tapper. You're your your uh, Richard Engel. Your um, you know Barbara Starr. You're kind of prestige um, conflict reporters turned kind of media brand. They they really do believe they're they're kind of in this legacy of Edward Murrow and Walter Cronkite and they're these truth teller sort of gravitas anchors right, um, and but really what they do the vast vast majority of the time is they just repeat uh, CIA Defense Department U.S. Chamber of Commerce and police report. I mean they're not doing real journalism. They're the stenographers of power. They're stenographers of whatever the Defense Department, U.S. officials, anonymous U.S. officials tell them. That's pretty much what they do. Richard, Richard Engel goes on TV every night and says, U.S. officials say this, U.S. officials say that. That's what he does, really. And this presented a very rare opportunity where the president was bucking the national security consensus, which, again, very happens very rarely. You saw this a similar parallel as actually Trump's uh, uh, summits with North Korea, which were um, immensely popular in South Korea, Um Polls showed anywhere between 75 and 88 percent approval rating for, for those summits because the the left wing um, movements and, and liberal president in South Korea was the one pushing these summits because they don't want to live in war forever and live under the threat of nuclear annihilation every five sure every five years. Um, but then the, then you turn on the U.S. media and there, you, would, you would have a, you would have no idea that that was the case. You would, you would think these were unpopular in South Korea that these were kind of a, a lark solely done by Trump, but it was. Uh, it was a it was a movement largely pushed by President Moon. It was it was it was not it, Trump sort of did it to spite Obama. Again, he did it for all the wrong reasons. But broadly speaking, the summits were a good thing, and you would have absolutely no way of knowing that watching the American media because it bucked the national security consensus. Again, perhaps for the wrong reasons, but nevertheless did it. This was similar. It was it was but but a much greater meltdown because Biden was supposed to be one of their guys. This is someone who's was viewed as being a centrist, who supported the war in Iraq, who's a hardened Zionist, who signed. Reasons, but he's always been a, a little bit eccentric around the margins when it comes to empire. This is someone who 
was a huge early critic of apartheid in South Africa. Um, you know, he may have fabricated some stories, but the broad outlines of that were true. Uh, this is someone who voted against the Persian Gulf War in 1991, um, oh. siding with progressives, even though the vast majority of Democrats supported it. Oh. Um, and he, I guess they looked at polling, they decided that Afghanistan war wasn't popular, that the juice wasn't really worth the squeeze um, in terms of empire, that they were going to pivot to Asia. Again, I don't think their motives were necessarily anti-imperialists uh, per se, but I do think they, there was a faction of the Defense Department who thought that, the, that it wasn't really worth it and they were going to kind of basically hand the country over to the Taliban knowing full well that um, they were never going to win that war and it was just going to be a death by a thousand cuts and that if they violated the terms of the agreement with that was made under President Trump, that this was going to um, that this was going to lead to more violence, escalated violence, that they had, should have had no choice but to abide by these terms. And this presented them a, a rare opportunity of looking like their Ed Morrow, Walter Cronkite, mm. this kind of self-regarded image they have of speakers of truth to power while still doing what they fundamentally do, which is carry water for the national security state. It's fascinating. So, so when this so yeah. when this happens, you have a convoluted, you have both of those forces at work. Then it's mug time, mug time, ding Biden, ding Biden, Biden this. I mean, they were Peter Baker at the New York Times was inventing anti-Biden stories out of whole cloth. They they went and they and they mined for some gold star families, not to mix metaphors, to um to to come out and say that they didn't like the way Biden brought up his dead son, Bo Biden. You know, thousands of gold star families, they found a couple to sort of say something mildly critical, and that became their story. I mean, they, they were really reaching to the bottom of the barrel to get this to stick, and the reality is it didn't. The recent poll show is very popular, that some people have some trepidation given the media coverage, and I think probably there are some objective, you know, fair-minded criticisms of the way the withdrawal was handled, but I think most of that's concern trolling, um, that most people will support it, and it didn't really work. And this was an example of a full-court press, as you said, um, again, I think there's a second factor at work here. I'm, I'm happy to go into if you want yeah. me to do that or we can. No, I was. The second uh, factor is ahead, that, please. look, there's a lot of ideological buy-in. Um, uh, there, uh, these are, these are a lot of these reporters, you know, for 20 years, Afghanistan is sort of where you went to kind of cut your teeth and get your, your street cred as a sort of serious journalist. It's kind of, it's why Jake Tapper is not just another pretty boy behind a desk. He's, he's Mr. Afghanistan. He went there, he wore the flak jacket. You know, he drank scotch with the with the boys and, and, and did. And a lot of journalists do this. You know, Mark the Raditz, uh, Richard Engel, they go there. They, they, they're they friendly with the military. They have a CIA handler. They um, they do the, the Bleeding Heart NGO tour. They meet all the, you know, sort of women's empowerment groups. Again, lower down the food chain, I think there's some, you know, good faith people who are genuinely trying to kind of educate women such that it is. So they sort of buy the moral framework of the war. They buy it, um, they buy it wholeheartedly and they have an ideological... Uh, commitment to, to, to continuing the war, to not losing the war. People generally don't like to lose. You don't like to look like it was kind of all for not because then these deaths of their buddies and their buddies' buddies are in vain. And these, and this liberal framework around kind of uh, the civilizing mission of Afghanistan. Um, this is, again, this is, as I, as I marked in the dig, this is very similar to the moral frameworks of British empire in India. Hmm. Um, we, on our show, we read an we read an article from 1896 uh, from the Associated Press about, and the headline was uh, "The Light in India," and it was about the British um, helping uh, helping women uh, from the Mohammedan uh, uh, rulers of India who were who were engaging in you know child marriage, uh, lack of education for girls, and the British were going and they were going to stop that and they were going to help that and that was the, the, they they were the light in India. The they were civilizing mission, right? And help the Hindus, or they speak, which they spell with two O's, that that was going to be their, that that was their reason for being there. And you know what? To some extent, that may have been true. Um, it's possible that, again, down the food chain, there were some good missionary types who were trying to help. Um, but does, does, does that justify British imperialism in India? It's not. Um, and this is, these are old tropes. I mean, civilizing missions, the British did the same thing when they were in Afghanistan, you know, during their, their, their few Afghanistan and the sort of Northwest frontier. Um, and just the same, their journalists, their reporters, their stenographers would go do their six months and 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 have their stories and send their tracks back to to London to be read. I mean, these are all kind of it's it's a very they're, they're, every every sort of imperial incursion needs some kind of moral narrative because otherwise, 
you, you don't have 3 million people in the Pentagon and tens of thousands of people in the State Department, all these kind of auxiliary NGOs. They, they don't wake up every morning saying, man, I really want to do an empire. I'm really excited to go uh, subjugate Afghans. And, 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 and um, they, they sort of believe it. And then you have the other side of the ledger, something that hasn't been talked about until Gopal's piece in, um, in The New Yorker a few weeks, uh, a couple of weeks ago. That uh, the other the, women the, of Afghanistan was that the other women of Afghanistan, which yeah, which detailed honor. the, um, which detailed the 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 actual cost benefit here with respect to the rural areas, which most of these reporters don't really go to. They don't necessarily know a lot about. They only to the extent they do go to it, it's it's from the perspective of the of of the U.S. Army or the U.S. Marines. Um, and this is that this drone war, this war was killing tens of thousands of people. It was, it, it, it had roughly, you know, according to conservative estimates, 9,000 Afghans approximately died last year in this war. Um, and, and that number is almost certainly an undercount. Uh, there are various kind of ethnographic ways that people have figured out that these numbers are almost certainly an undercount, but we'll sort of grant them. That's 10,000, that's tens of thousands of people. And then meanwhile, you have Peter Baker when he did his, his very, thinly veiled editorializing in the New York Times news analysis article. Again, this is ostensibly a straight reporter um, who said, oh, well, you know what? It's, 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 um, the costs weren't really that great. We lost, we only lost um, um, 100 troops in the, in the last five years, 100 U.S. troops in the last five years of fighting, which he said was the equivalent of two hours of, of deaths from COVID, oh. uh, which is one of these all-time great psychotic things to say. Yeah. And so it's like, it's all sort of very anodyne. Again, never mind. He doesn't mention the Afghan civilian death. Of course he not. mentioned the sort of way the war has destroyed countless families and generations. These yep. drone strikes largely anonymously kill unknown people. And again, we know this from the supposed airstrike against ISIS-K that, that was in retribution for the, for, uh, the bombing at the airport. That, that, was, that was aid workers. And uh, the New York Times found that out to be the case. Of course, I think the, one of the main motivations for doing that was, again, to ding Biden, mm. to sort of discipline him, ironically. But we know that uh, seven children were killed in this airstrike. We know that based on the Daniel Hale um, whistleblowing leaks of, of the drone papers to the Intercept uh, a couple of years ago, that uh, during, you know, according to the DOD's own internal documents, over one five-month five period, 90% of drone strike targets that were killed were not the intended target. Uh, this is not, an, this is not uh, unusual. This is, the, this is standard par for course stuff, that they are really just kind of killing whoever they vaguely think may or may not be Taliban or ISIS or, ISIS or Al Qaeda, and and they almost certainly don't know, and they have no sort of institutional reason to care. You know, they pay the victims' families a couple thousand dollars, uh, and then they you know buy some goats with this, and then they move on. And there's no kind of justice. There's no there's there's no, there's no sense of, of 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 accountability. There's no sort of system here. And so people hate the civil war. They hate the war. They want it to end. The Asia Foundation, which is a kind of CIA carve out anyway, does these polls. They say, you know, to the people in Afghanistan, like, who do you support? Taliban, U.S. and Depends how you sort of ask the push pull. Sometimes they'll say, "Well, the U.S. troops are fine as long as they're protecting you from Taliban." And they'll say the Taliban's fine because they're not as corrupt as these death squads the CIA are backing. But poll after poll after poll shows that most people want the war to end. That that is overwhelming consensus amongst Afghans, especially in the rural areas who are subject to these capricious uh, drone strikes, that they want the war to end. And this consensus, like with the South Korea consensus, is just completely removed from the equation. And we get this, you know, surrender agreement. Um, again, some liberals thought they could own Trump by kind of trying to outflank from the right, saying, you know, Biden's hands are tied because of the surrender agreement. You have this kind of tough guy posture, but it's just not reflective of the reality. And of course, you have conflicts of interest. And the aforementioned Peter Bacon, uh, Peter Baker piece about the, uh, where he kind of lamented the end of the war, his primary source for, for an alternative. They kept trying to push this kind of third way where you left a residual force, but that, of course, would have been a direct violation of the terms of the Taliban and would have led to more war. His, his, his source was Megan O'Sullivan, uh, who he, he said was a, who he, who, he, who he identified as a former Bush official, but of course is on the board of directors of Raytheon, oh. um, who, uh, who had just signed a $165 million um, contract with uh, the U.S. military to help train Afghan air pilots, and amongst many other, amongst billions of dollars of other contracts. And so, sure. again, conflicts of interest, but again, I'm told there's no blob. I'm told that's a fiction. Right. That's a sort of left-wing invention. A conspiracy, um, but perhaps. I think you take a conspiracy theory that, um, you know, the fact that the, you know, it's, it's, I think it's sort of epistemologically, I think a lot of it, it's sort of like, oh, well, the Washington generals pay, play the you know, Harlem Globetrotters and they, they lost the last hundred out of the last hundred games. But since I don't have the smoking gun email that the games are rigged, you can't infer that they're rigged. That's a conspiracy theory. Well, one of the, <laughs> and, um, and it's, 
Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was no gonna... it's, just, it's like that with coverage. It's so uniform. It's like, well, it may, may, perhaps the conspiracy is not the word, but whatever it is, you know, 100 out of 100 are pretty much reading the same script. So Yeah, and I want to drill down on that. One of the other, I guess I could call it a technique, but I think it's more of a reflex that we saw with the Biden pullout, and we also saw with the lead-up to the war in Iraq, is this tendency to uh, for, the, for the media... Uh, to focus on a very small bore issue. So the Biden withdrawal itself was covered um, as like, did was the withdrawal done correctly? Was there a way that lives could have been saved? When I think the real, the, the, the large uh, issue, the world historical issue really is uh, what are the consequences um, of America losing a war in Afghanistan? What are the consequences of the war on terror ostensibly being over? What are the consequences of now this as you said, pivot to Asia, which is now three presidents old, because it was Obama originally who wanted yeah. to try to go into the Pacific and start yeah, to yeah, face pivot to Asia, regardless, right? right what, yeah. What the warmongers wanted was to pivot to Asia and also keep Afghanistan, because they they believe Afghanistan has strategic value with respect to China. But um, it's this but small the war. On, the, war on, the, the war on terror is definitely not ending. I mean, one of the things Biden wanted to stress is they're still going to do these, you know, horizon strikes, um, the drone strikes, which comprise com- comprise a great deal of the deaths like, are not really going to abate. I think they'll have less reason to do them once the Taliban takes over. Um, but they'll still do these, they'll still do drone strikes and the war. So the sort of global, we can murder anyone anywhere we want, whenever we want to regime is, is unchanged. The basic contours of that are unchanged. The, the demilitarization or the sort of pull out of the military boots on the ground is a meaningful de-escalation. And we know that because we did have a blood meltdown. If it wasn't, we would not have had a blood meltdown. Right? <laughs> um, so I, I think, um, I, you know, I, I think that one of the things you have to understand about Afghanistan is that more than anything is that it was a it was a absolute gravy train. I mean, absolute um, cash cow for those who those who were uh, fortunate enough to have those military contracts. Right. And something like uh, you know seventy eighty billion dollars a year goes into Afghanistan. The majority of that, three quarters of that, comes back to United States comes back to three counties in Virginia, a couple counties in Maryland, a few counties in Connecticut, California, weapons makers in Arizona. I mean, it was it was a boom to the American weapons industry, which is why the American weapons industry for years and years has been lavishing so-called think tanks with money mm. uh, to, to produce these mercenary PhDs that will go on TV and go on record at the New York Times and say, oh, no, no, well, this war is really important and it's totally winnable. Um, you have these generals who have been on TV. You have people like David Petraeus, who's on the board of directors of KKR, which is a private equity firm that has military connections. You have um, uh, people like Jay Johnson, who's the former uh, auditor of the Defense Department slash former head of Homeland Security under Obama, who's on the board of uh, directors at Lockheed Martin going on MSNBC and talking about how important it is we stay in Afghanistan. I mean, these conflicts of interest are pretty much everywhere. Uh, people like Eli Clifton at the Daily Beast have done a good job documenting them. They've been there. They've been doing this for months. Again, you have uh, uh, Megan O'Sullivan at, at Raytheon. Um, you have endless generals. And, of course, David Petraeus, who's been everywhere talking, criticizing Biden, um, was the author of the Afghan, Afghanistan strategy. And his personal interest, beyond financial interest, to kind of salvage that for his own personal brand. You know, he does these... $50,000 pop uh, speaking tour thing where he talks about lessons learned in Afghanistan. It's a heaping pile of shit, you know. There's <laughs> it's really like bad for his brand. Yeah. And generals don't typically like to, I mean, again, it's it, at, it, when people ask a general or a weapons contractor, should we stay in a war? It's like, what are they supposed I mean, I, again, I think with the, in the case of people who are on the boards of directors of weapons contractors hmm. with massive with massive contracts in Afghanistan, I think I'm not a corporate lawyer, but I think there's an argument to be made that they they really can't advocate pulling out because they'll lose those contracts and yeah, shareholder responsibility to their shareholders. Yeah, as as board members, they have a fiduciary duty both of care and loyalty, a fiduciary loyalty, a duty of care and duty of loyalty under Delaware law. They they can't like go around explicitly undermining the financial interest of these firms, and so again none of this is disclosed i mean this is so prevalent i have we have dozens of examples that the intercept and, and what like clifton and myself and others have been documenting we're sitting there watching this and it's like what are these people supposed to say as i always say it's like if someone's like well you know adam johnson this is from citations needed he's gonna you know there's a 50 billion dollar handout to, to patreon podcast 
Uh, do you support it? What, what am I supposed to say? No. I mean, of course, I'm going to say, yeah, of course, this is really important for national security that $5 billion goes to citations needed podcast. <laughs> I mean, right. it, it's, it's ridiculous to assume they're going to, they're, they're, these people are not neutral observers. It's, it's just in the ether. And like you said, it's unquestioned. Uh, what's, you know, there's this, this tendency to turn any issue, whether it's, um, say, the war in Afghanistan and the pullout, or it's um, income inequality. There's this tendency also to only stay within the, within the bounds of like what's seen as the politically possible, which is to say turn whatever particular issue this one included into basically a bipartisan pissing match. You know, what, not like what happened here? What have we done for the last 20 years? Why did it fail? Yeah. Why, why did these things happen this way? It's instead, what are the political implications for X and Y politicians? Yeah, how did this affect Biden's poll numbers? ABC does this with Nate Silver. Um, you have the process criticisms, you know, how did America like to withdraw this and that, you know, it's all push polls because they'll, you know, they'll say, they'll say, how do you think Biden handled the withdrawal, which is a different question than do you support the withdrawal? Um, you know, a good example of this, of this asymmetry, when you talk about that, which is sort of, and, and, and that's really what's at work here. Ideologically, the Peter Bakers and Richard Ingalls and Martha Radices and Jake Tappers, national security, the sort of maintenance of empire, the maintenance of U.S. militarism is not within the realm of political debate. It is right. an axiom like gravity or the universal con or the, or the universal constant. It's just yeah. the way it is. And so we, I did an article in my Substack a few days ago about um, Jake Tapper, who sort of, you know, there was a recent study by Brown University, David Vine, $14 trillion have been spent since 9-11 on post-9-11 wars. $700 billion a year, conservatively, it's probably higher. Um, not in that, and that in, that a single time since his career from Salon to ABC to CNN, he has Jake Tapper. He has constantly talked about deficits and debts. He did it under Obama. He did it under Trump. He did it under Biden. He's, he's Mr. Deficits and Debts guy. We used to grill the Obama administration over it all the time about during the stimulus package negotiations. Whereas I listed all the things that he had over the years when he, you know, during debates with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or during his interviews with Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, universal health care, uh, free housing, free college, um, um, uh, st various stimulus package, the infrastructure bill. These are things he constantly says, how are you going to pay for it? Um, again, not the most original critique. He's a little bit criticism Tepper about the years. But what that shows you is that the reason why that's valuable, not only because it's clear that deficit concerns are, 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 are arbitrarily used bludgeon to scold programs that help the poor, um, the government, that government spending that, that is, that, um, that, that's some activists like those at IBC say, they, they refer to it as the, the, the living economy, that which creates life, that which provides housing, education, uh, provides for the poor, that that is within the realm of politics. That is to be, every red cent has to be accounted for. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a 10 point PowerPoint plan where you say, here's how you're going to pay for it. But that which creates death, that which creates empire, that which sustains the sort of uh, global hegemon of the U.S. is is it just as Zionism in Israel, just as empire in nineteenth-century Britain, or even today, for that matter. It's not questionable. It's just sort of the way it is. It, it is an axiom for which we have that, that exists beyond politics, and that's why the meltdown of Afghanistan was so profound because. Biden, again, I think because he looked at polls and saw it had an 80% support rate and so for, for political reasons, um, that this was, he was doing something that was beyond the, 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 that, that realm of political debate and, and, and had not listened to the experts. You know, never mind that the experts are all on the boards of directors of Lockheed Martin right now. And in a, in a meta sense, too, what's fascinating is that we saw this drive, this parade to war uh, after September 11th and up into the uh, invasion of Iraq. And it was, you know, widely admitted that the media made a ton of mistakes. There were, you know, various mainstream articles about, um, you know, how Judith Miller, for example, in the New York Times was laundering Dick Cheney's talking points and how there were media failures across the board absolutely no consequences for anybody. And that's actually worse than that because uh, most of those people were rewarded for it in the sense that they have more prestigious jobs than they had back then. And in the 20 years since, there's obviously been absolutely no reckoning whatsoever with what happened back then because it's happening here again. Well, yeah, I mean, you had some self-flagellation from, you know, 
Jeffrey Goldberg and Ezra Klein and, and a couple, a couple sort of Warhawks who kind of did that. What did I got? What did I do wrong? Which, you know, so if you read the fine print, it's always like, but I was kind of right. <laughs> um, you know, we don't have accountability. I mean, again, you have someone like Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the editor in chief at the Atlantic, one of the most influential kind of bourgeois liberal magazines, probably the most in many ways. Um, in 2002, when he was writing for The New Yorker, was doing all kinds of conspiracy theories about Iraq being behind 9-11, um, Hezbollah sleeper cells sort of ready to pounce, which not, not evidence of which never revealed itself. Um, links to, I mean, he wrote several pieces, went on NPR, and Slate, and when he wrote for Slate.com during, during their debate forum in 2002 and early 2003, constantly speculated about uh, Saddam Hussein being behind 9-11. Um Totally discredited. I mean, complete fiction. Uh, one of the great lies about the war in Iraq. Um, but no, he's just you know going to events, hanging out with Obama, interviewing Obama, doing doing the circuit, being the most powerful, influential editor uh, in the United. I mean, there's no there's no accountability. I mean, you know, I there's involved. no shame all, either. The ruling really I mean, class has no shame people, whatsoever. All the people at the Washington Post who pushed or still work at the Washington Post. Uh, Max Boot wrote you know wrote the wrote an article in the national review called, and, and, um, uh, why we need to expand American empire, you know, big, big promoter. Now he's Mr. Anti-Trump or a lot of these people are, of course, laundered the reputations after Trump, um, yeah. or during Trump. Um, but, uh, why would there be, you know, why would there be any accountability for that? I mean, you, you, you sort of quickly learn in this business that what, what gets you promotion. I mean, look at, again, Jake, Jake Tapper's like careers based on his relationship, largely driven by not only his, it's kind of schmaltzy. I'm a, I'm a de- defender of the troops shtick. Um, you know, this troop texted me and told me that, okay, thanks Jake. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's his, uh, his relationship with John McCain, one of these sort of great warmongers, huge went on, you know, went on late night television and said that Saddam Hussein was behind the anthrax attacks. And he, he did the boys on the bus thing with, with McCain in 2000, they became good friends, sort of wrote his coattails to ABC. Um, you know, it, it <laughs> The way you get ahead is not based on any kind of fidelity to truth or or, or, or or any kind of contrarian posture with respect to real real institutions of power. It's how well can you sell the lie? And then everyone sort of forgets it and, and moves on. Um, and, you know, it's like it's like Nicholas Kristof. He, he wrote, he's now running for Senate in Oregon. He wrote, you know, eight or nine pieces about how, you know, the, how important Libya was and how his heart bled for Libya in the spring, the winter and spring of 2011. And then we bombed Libya. It descended in the civil war. Uh, things have not been going well there. Um, he hasn't written about Libya since September of 2011, uh, over almost 10 years. Memory hold. So his sort of heart bleeds for Libya. And then he never mentions it again because it served the interest you know, so if 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 Nick Kristoff runs to your country and talks about how horrible it is, there's you know you have about a seventy percent chance of U.S. bombs falling on you within the next few weeks. Right. Um, you know, run, uh, <laughs> which you know, and and uh, this kind of you know, so there's no, no accountability really, and, and, and that's that's pretty much you know standard issue because it, it, it's it's what they'll say is that everybody was wrong. Of course, that's never true, right? Oh, Lots I remember of, people it, not being yeah, wrong yeah. in the lead up to the Iraq war. I was reading them. Yeah, I, was out in the streets I did a whole them. thread on this. I sort of, I showed Jeremy Scahill's reporting for Democracy Now! When he went, when um, the Bush administration said this facility was was producing uh, chemical weapons and, and Jeremy Scahill was in Iraq and he goes to the facility. And he's like, no, look, they're just, they're, it's like an iron casting facility. You can go and they give you a full tour with French reporters and, and uh, Arab reporters. They're sort of like, there's no, it's not there. I mean, you know, Fair, fair.org was doing that. Uh, you know, there's even critical pieces in, and it's pretty critical pieces in the nation uh, elsewhere. So, you know, and that's how it works. You know, that's that's the kind of meritocracy we 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 have, which is not do you have any kind of are, are you doing real journalism in any meaningful sense? It's are you serving the interests of power? And if you are, you get promoted. Right. And all these guys, all these guys got promoted. In, in terms of, and you made a nod to this before when you talked about the, um, the British civilizing mission in, uh, in India and Afghanistan in the 19th century, but um, what does all this mean, if anything, really, to the idea of, like, uh, of liberal humanitarian interventionism, which even predates 9-11, of course. It goes mm-hmm. back to uh, George H.W. Bush, I suppose, and certainly back to Bill Clinton uh, with Kosovo. 
Um, has that taken a hit? Is that part of, at least in, in terms of the public and maybe some politicians? That'll never, that'll never take a hit. There'll mm. always be sort of dopey, functional, you know, human rights concerns that emerge about enemy regimes right when we sort of need them to emerge. Um, the selective, the selectivity of it all is kind of evergreen. Um, and it's not like they really need to make things up necessarily, although I think sometimes they do. It's, it's a lot of emphasis. It's an issue of emphasis. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the issue with, you see this a lot with Human Rights Watch in Palestine, Israel, where there's this kind of just calling balls and strikes human rights approach, but manifestly, in effect, um, it necessarily serves the interest of, of Israel because the, the sort of fundamental difference is when they talk about war crimes committed by Israel, it's sort of a reformist, they did this with Saudi Arabia too, it's a reformist approach where they, the regime is not existentially in need of, of, of overthrowing, it's, they just need to sort of do better. Whereas when it's Hamas or, or whoever they call Hamas that week, um, it's existential. That there, there, There's no qualification. There's no sense that here's like a path forward. It's that this regime needs to go. You see this with a bunch of countries. That's sort of how the, a lot of the human rights posturing works. And and that concern and that regime, you know, with various enemies, I think will never sort of go away. And again, it's not like some of what they, it's not, it's not like most of what they say is necessarily false. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the emphasis is the key here. You know, on, in December of 2002, Human Rights Watch reported a, you know, had a huge, long, I mean, tens of thousands of words scathing report about the abuses of Saddam Hussein. And that was that was cited in the New York Times editorial in support of the war. Now, if the if Human Rights Watch does a long report about the human rights violations of the Bush regime, it go, you know, it goes in a closet somewhere and collects dust. It doesn't, it's not really weaponized. But when you do it for an enemy state on the eve of an invasion, there's really only one way that that's 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 a value, which is that it provides liberal cover for for militarism, um, and this is one of the kind of functions of some of the kind of uh, U.S. State Department revolving door type human rights groups that you you know you kind of need to that need that need to be addressed and dealt with, uh, which is you know how are you serving the, the needs of U.S. imperialism or U.S. militarism at that particular moment? What's the context of that? Um, why do we focus on certain things but not others? Um, and because again, I mean, Human Rights Watch is, is, is you know was founded in 1977 as as a as a response to Amnesty International, who who some in the U.S. Uh, sort of Cold War circles thought was too tall, too soft on the Soviets, and it was it was originally called Helsinki Rights Watch, and it was about uh, it's, it's focused solely on the on the on the crimes of the Soviet Union and and countries in the Soviet Union. Um, sort of pivoted later in the 90s. But, um, you know, that, that kind of selective outrage about human rights is, has always been a, a sort of function of, of how liberal imperialism works. Um, and again, it's not as if they necessarily need to just make up things whole cloth, but it's very much about emphasis, focus, and also the existential nature of how, how said crimes are existential to the regime. I mean, again, the U.S. commits countless, countless war crimes all the time, but you'll never hear, my baby's crying in the background, uh, sorry, okay. uh, but you'll never hear... Uh, He's hungry. Uh, you'll never hear uh, ever Ken Roth or whoever say, you know, that we need to re- overthrow the regime of the U.S. Right. That the regime or Israel or Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Right. That these are. I mean, Saudi Arabia has been on the same supposed reform plan for about 350 years. I mean, right. they go from letting five women drive to seven women drive to ten women drive over a 10-year period, and it's hailed as this, you know, sort of. Great humanitarian victory. One I thing, joke. One thing that that was was uh, portrayed as a joke over the last four years, and something that kind of was a joke but had some reality to it, was Donald Trump and his followers. Uh, the accusation that there is some sort of deep state that was out to get him. I think you know at the time, and certainly in retrospect, it seems like there was something very valid to that uh, in the sense that the CIA and the FBI and other state actors were actively trying to undermine Trump. Not that he was a good president, but they were. No, yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, it seems, it seems fairly obvious to me. I mean, I I was always sort of confused by, um, now I, you know, I I would say the generous read on that would be that they were genuinely scared he was going to start a a nuclear war. Yeah. That, those Millie articles (laughs) in the last couple of days. Yeah. Like, I mean, but, but it always seemed incredibly 
disingenuous to act like there wasn't elements within the military and CIA actively working to undermine Trump. I mean, you saw right. this with all the Russiagate leaks. I mean, the, the, when, when you see a new Russiagate leak and then CNN or Daily Beast like every single week, like almost every Monday morning at the exact same time, that sort of is interpreted in the least generous, most sensationalist light possible, a lot of which we know were not true. Russiagate is a there perfect was, example. Yeah. I, I, think, I think there was some, I think there was probably, you know, there was a lot of smoke there. I think there was probably some, you know, calls here and there. I, I but 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 the uh, I'm not I'm not sort of a categorical dismisser of Russiagate necessarily, but I think a lot of it was hyped up. We now we sort of now know that we know that a lot of the argue, the, a lot of the Steele dossier was total bullshit. Um, we but you would see it every single day. You get a new article, salacious article every single every single week. New article, CNN, Daily Beast, Washington, you know, Washington Post, because the, Times, the, the fact the, the fact and is, it's like, is, is that there like are... these leaks could have only come from right. the, the quote unquote deep state. They're the only ones with access to this information because you can call um, them. You can call them the blob. You can call them the military industrial yeah, complex. That was weird to me. You but ultimately it is true that there is something like a permanent government that exists, not just in the sure. bureaucracy of the of the federal government, was, not just in the D.O.D., which was liberal conventional wisdom until 2017, 2016, right. right? I mean, this was this was not like a controversial claim. We understand that there's a permanent military state. There's an intelligence state that has tremendous power. We know based on the Snowden leaks um, that much of the NSA's surveillance programs were not even revealed to Obama until, you know, six months in office, right? There's a really great part where they're talking about um, in 2013 when it was revealed the U.S. was spying on European allies. And the, and, and, and the NSA lets Obama know, I think, in something like November of 2009, you know, he's already been in office for almost a year. They were in Merkel's computer. Yeah. And it's like, clearly the NSA was not, was not allowed, was not like asking Obama for permission. They were like letting him, they were giving him heads up. Like, it was like, it was like a blinker on a left turn. I wasn't like telling you, I wasn't asking you, I was telling you. Right. Uh, there's a lot of that going on. And people have known that for, you know, for years that, that, that there are centers of power that are not democratic, that are permanent. Now, obviously, the president does have power. Uh, they're not totally powerless. Um, but, but the idea that in, that the quote unquote deep state can 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 leak things to make certain presidents look bad, um, just as the NYPD can leak things to make mayors look bad, or other police departments leak things to make you know mayors look bad. Obviously, it's not the same scale. Um, that seems fairly obvious to me. I mean, I, I always I've always sort of been confused by that. I mean, you had, you had a thousand military ex military officials come out and sign a letter against Trump. I mean, it's, it was no secret that they thought he was, um, I mean, again, I think there's the generous interpretation is that it was coming from a place of genuine concern, right? Sure. Not something necessarily sinister. But um, it doesn't have to case, be, doesn't have to be conscious in, or, in order to be sinister. Right? But clearly there was, there was some effort to undermine. Right. But, Trump. But, I, this... I, but I think, but I think ultimately he sort of ended up doing a lot of things that certainly, again, it's not also not uniform, right? There are factions within the quote unquote deep state that are not in agreement. Right. Uh, but then again, he did a lot of things. They like, you know, sort of expanded the war on terror, bombed Yemen, uh, um, some, took out Soleimani in, in, in Iraq, uh, the, the Iranian general. Uh, they, they all, so he also did very hawkish things too. Uh, let, let Saudi Arabia escalate the war in Yemen. Um, so I, I don't think it was sort of a uniform deep state thing. I think there were, but it, it does, it seemed clear to me based on the nature of the leaks. Um, now again, if, if Mr. Deep state representative would hear was here now, he'd say like, look, we had a genuine concern. He was like taking right. orders from Russia. And it's like, well, if there was actual direct evidence of that, I'm pretty sure we would have, we would have known that right away. That, that's, that's the thing about Russiagate that never sort of made sense to me that like there was all this sort of innuendo and, and sort of circumstantial elements. And it's like, so I'm supposed to sort of believe that the greatest surveillance state in the history of the world, <laughs> you know, with 17 intelligence to, you know, pretty much records every single call made that, that they had like, if, if there was something more substantive, I think we would have, we would have known. And, um, and I think the, the, the larger point for us, right, is that, you know, it's clear that something like a permanent government uh, exists, but it's also clear that among uh, the functionaries, the accoutrements, or you call them the mechanisms of empire, literal capitalist hegemony under the United States, um, we can include at least to some extent, and maybe you can do a, uh, uh, we can do some theory on this in the, in the time we have left, but you need to include, uh, at least, uh, the corporate media in the United States in those, uh, functionaries of empire or arms of the state. Uh, but you also need to include, uh, NGOs, you know, for example, uh, the, the, the boots on the ground, as it were, of humanitarian interventionism. Yeah. So I think we can actually maybe here in the next like 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes, maybe you can give a sort of media theory of how have all these pieces fit together. Well, I mean, it's, it's a spectrum, right? I mean, some NGOs, I think, are 
fine. I think some are quite sinister. I just did a whole long piece on Global Citizen, which is one of these great, um, which is probably one of the most powerful, influential, probably the most powerful, influential kind of on the, on the more sinister end of the spectrum. Some uh, an organization I think is very, uh, very cynical. Um, this is an organization that's supposedly meant to fight poverty that receives a great deal of its funding, if not most of its funding, from Bill Gates, the World Bank, mm-hmm. um, various corporations, you know, Google, um, uh, uh, Verizon, Comcast, uh, uh, basically a reputation laundromat from some of the most rapacious forces of capital on earth. My poor kid keeps crying. Sorry. Oh, no, it's a good interlude. I think I think he's trying to, you're trying to feed him. And it makes me... Anyway, um, and this is some, you know, it's, it's a very glossy, um, supposedly to fight poverty and promote environmentalism. But then you sort of read, they got, they're putting on a huge concert on September 25th with like everybody, BTS, uh, Coldplay, name it. And you read their <laughs> literature and they're like, again, they're, 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 they're very aligned with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, mm-hmm. one of the most, one of the most, if not the most sinister forces on earth. Also I mean, just, one of the mechanisms of empire, yes. <laughs> a, a great, a great driver of poverty. The structural adjustment programs leave yeah. countries in debts, debt for decades, um, and they put on the, they put on this rally in 2015 in Central Park to like fight poverty, and they have the head they have the head of the IMF up there giving a speech, and I'm like, of all what people. the fuck is it? Yeah. Like they're, <laughs> I mean, and it's it's sort of a classic limited hangout. Um, it's a classic kind of what's well, controlled opposition basically, right? Um, and people fall for it. Celebrities fall for it. I think some of them have their own kind of cynical reasons, especially uh, with regard to. We're doing an episode on this right now with regard to intellectual property and how how the how the MPA promotes um, the enforcement of global intellectual property and how that aligns with Bill Gates. Um, but uh, a lot of them are just kind of golden retrievers, you know. They're they're not they're not kind of bright. They kind of go with whatever, and they don't think about how why you would be relying on the forces that drive poverty, like exploitative IMF, like the World Bank, like American multinational corporations. Why would you rely on them to fund an organization system to stop poverty? And this, it's all kind of a Bill Gatesy kind of model, right? Mm-hmm. Where activism is who can sort of create the most glossy, non-confrontational, anodyne, vague, liberal um, fundraising vehicle right. to go sort of ask for table scraps from the rich. Um, but as far as sort of humanitarian NGOs, yeah, I mean, State Department funded, again, a lot of think tanks serve a similar function. They receive money from weapons contractors, State Departments, uh, um, various government organizations. Um, you know, NGOs on the more sinister end of the spectrum, I think, kind of serve uh, serve that purpose. A lot of times, again, I think they're populated by people who sort of mean well. Um, I think they view I think they view that as, uh, Sorry, as more, being... Um, more baby crying I didn't hear. Yeah, there is. Uh, I think I think they view that as being um, their a sort of primary mechanism to change. Like a lot of people don't really think critically about how that, how it fits into imperial contexts. Well, it's in that um, same ideological bubble that we were talking about before, and what can be covered, what can even be thought about, right? They live in that world as well. Well, it's taking for granted that the U.S. is good, right? And, and, empire and, and, the extent, and, and the extent that it's bad, it's sort of flawed, or, it, or right. it's sort of lost its way, or it's kind of bu- it bumbling. You see it bumbling a lot. Uh, it's sort of very hip to kind of say, well, you know, they're just sort of rolling around the light switch in the Middle East, you know, roll around the Middle East in the dark looking for the light switch. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a popular narrative um, as well. Uh, and they view it as one of the ways in which you can do good. Um, and again, the, then, you, then you get these auxiliary kind of civilizing missions, women's rights, women's education. I mean, you had Amnesty International in 2012 put up a billboard in the, in the, in the NATO, uh, around the NATO summit in Chicago. Um, with pictures of, of, of women and girls in full kind of, um, you know, cover saying, you know, keep, keep, keep the progress growing for women and, and girls' that, rights in Afghanistan. That's activism these days. That's AOC wearing the tax the rich dress to the Met Gala. Like the, the height of politics. Well, I, I, I'm is, not going to go into that. No, no, we're not. Go we're not going to. But I was just going <laughs> to. We don't want to go too. I, we I don't want to go into down that, on, I've, I've officially come down to being aggressively. Uh, uh, agnostic to that yeah yeah um, I, but i will say that the connection there is that the only way that political change seems possible to happen uh on the liberal left is that you appeal to those with power with the rich in order to change their minds about how much tax money they're willing to give up yeah and i'm not sure you know it's again it's it's a gradient and there's a line where you sort of cross um you know like i worked for a year and a half as a writer at the 
or a writer and podcaster at the Appeal magazine, um, which was a nonprofit and, you know, got money from Tides, which I think has some Soros money. Mm. Um, and they kind of let me say what I wanted to say, but eventually I think they moved directions and they fired everyone who was remotely good, but they were like vaguely subversive for a year or two. And you can sort of work within that system to kind of do meaningful things. But, um, but again, there, that was purely domestic. There's a reason why nothing that's remotely subversive involves any kind of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I understood, I understood the assignment. I kind of knew where those lines were. They never censored me, never edited me. But again, it was in the very, it was within the very modest framework of, um, uh, prison reform and prison abolition, which, is, which can sort of bleed over into kind of bourgeois funding. Mm. Um, again, I think that's changed. All that's gone away now. Now that you know, crime goes up one percent, then suddenly, that's not that's yeah. not a fair play anymore. So that right. that's changed. But but uh, you know, you sort of there's a so I've worked within that that kind of nonprofit NGOE world a little bit. And what it, the way it works is you sort of have a very there's a very clear, funk, narrow focus about what you can do and what you really can't do, and what you can say, what you can't say. And within that, within that framework, I think people try to do good. Uh, the problem is, is that sometimes it exists within a broader. There's a broader design there that that is that you cross the line into sort of doing PR for these t- horrible institutions. Yeah, and I'd say that. And the, one of the things we struggle with in our show, because we do criticize nonprofits yeah. in geo world a lot, is that it's not quite clear where that line is, because there are organizations that may take, you know, hundred grand from the Ford Foundation, but I think do really good work. Or, you know, I don't think, it, I don't think, you know, not everyone can be this pure, purely Substack and Patreon funded podcaster who's, you know, sort of above the fray and, and the only, and, you know, the only real moral person in media. Like it's a, it's a fine line. I, I think you cross a line though when you take X amount percentage wise, or you sort of take money from directly from governments. I think that really shouldn't be something anyone does. I, um, I think but, so. It's you know, yeah, I'm no, handwriting I, here. Sorry. No, no. I, I, um, I, I was trying to think about this today. I was trying to think about the media, which I don't think about all that much. And what I always fall back on is a sort of vulgar periodization. I was thinking about the sort of monolithic mass media of uh, the New Deal coalition era, for example. You know, you had the three television stations, and it was very much a top-down media enterprise with the news and commentary. You had the big newspapers. You had smaller newspapers, but really each one of them towing this sort of this, this line. Uh, and then you had, I guess as we move into the neoliberal era, you have a bit of a, a crack-up of that, and you start to, we start to get in this country a sort of bipartisan media environment, right, that's adequate to, to the, the neoliberal consensus. And as now, as we like, I mean, I'm not saying that neoliberalism is over, but as the sort of like <clears throat> political economy of the Clinton and Bush eras, and, and, the, and Obama as well, as um, capital remains in crisis, as uh, job growth uh, and good job growth, as we know in this country, uh, continues to decline. And uh, yeah, definitely as, as profits are low, um, you've seen this fracturing of the media landscape even more that was meant to, with the rise of the internet, it was meant to sort of give a voice to everybody. But instead, what we're left with now is like, is definitely some main actors, you know, the, C- the CNN, MSNBC, and the Fox. But now yeah. you have this proliferation of, uh, of, of media. And I'm thinking of like OAN here, and I'm thinking of like um, the, the, whatever the liberal, um, you know, uh, example of that would be and, and many others uh and and then also social media with all the anti-vax stuff and and whatever there's now this like great diffusion and disintegration of media that seems kind of adequate to this era that we're in right now but at the same time the mass media has, has still has this power to drive the conversation so i wonder if maybe my question is do you think that what do you think's going on now what is what has the internet done to things how has the empire kind of Ooh. eaten up you know, the, the new forms of, of mass media that we have right now and how is the power uh, ideological and otherwise of empire continued? It's difficult for me to assess that with any degree of precision because me too. <laughs> because of the, the ways in which these things work historically have constantly have very much been opaque. Um, and we're in a, a, a period of flux a, as well. Nothing's this, is coalesced. Epistemological, this is a big epistemological question, which is how do... Uh, the interest of the rich or security interests curate information online. I think much of the fake news panic was largely animated by a desire to have stricter controls around that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think fake news such that it is, is a genuine problem, but I also think it was very much exploited as it has been in dozens of other countries. Um, so I have some sort of guesses. I wouldn't necessarily want to go on a podcast and, and throw those out because I would okay. be kind of irresponsible. Um, but my guess is they're probably not as bumbling as people think mm. is what I would say. 
which is which is a little cryptic, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, sure. That's I, 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 I think that um, I, 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 I don't I don't know. I have sort of guesses, so I'll refrain. I'll my kids crying. I think I have to go. Oh, you <laughs> have to I go. I, help. I, I, it's, well, I should help with feeding time, actually. Sure. I it's... <laughs> well, we will leave these que- uh, questions pregnant. I'm so in sorry the air. I gave this an inadequate final answer. but No, no, it's fine. There was really no answer to that. There was a series of guesses, mm-hmm. and I could give my own as well, but this is something that I'm going to be working out myself because I think maybe with Matt Christman I'll get together and we'll formulate a big thesis for that, and we'll put it <laughs> out in, a, in another big episode. So, Adam, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. This was great. Very, very informative. And everybody listen to Citations Needed. You probably do already, but extra listen to it. And uh, once more, thanks again, Adam. All right. So that uh, great interview with Adam was cut short because of baby. But uh, that means we have a few more minutes and I want to talk about uh, some strike news. Strike news. This is the segment, the new segment maybe called Strike News. I think it's good. It's a good idea. Let's do it. Nabisco workers um, under the, um, what is it here? Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union uh, struck for one month, and uh, they are coming back to work uh, this week, uh, which seems like a victory. People were following the strike. There were um, solidarity boycotts against Nabisco products. I remember seeing online there were store shelves that were empty of Oreos, for example, because um, these Nabisco workers were relatively successful in the strike of doing what a strike is supposed to do, which is harm capital's uh, ability to make profits, to produce goods and make profits. There were um, replacement workers in this instance, but one of the great things that... Uh, the Nabisco workers did uh, was they blocked, they were successful in blocking the vans that were bringing scabs in and out of the facility. And they were also able to block uh, the railroads. They set up a picket line uh, down on the railroad tracks where goods would come into and out of the factory in Portland, Oregon. They basically put a picket out there and for some time the railroad workers refused to cross that picket, which was great because uh, it really, really harmed the company, really, really harmed capital. Of course, eventually a judge came down with an injunction against the workers for this uh, act of militancy that turns out was illegal, but also was very effective. There's um, another side to the story, though, and I'm reading Willamette Week here. This is an article by Sophie Peel, a very good article from uh, yesterday, September 19th. And uh, it seems like uh, local 364 uh, of the Nabisco workers, about 200 workers, who had called the strike out. Uh, are now going back in against their own will. Uh, In fact, the contract that they fought for through this strike um, did keep their health insurance, which is good. They were fighting to keep their health insurance. They didn't want to give up concessions on that, which they didn't. Although, of course, winning would, I suppose, mean a better health care contract. But anyways, one thing that's being set up now in this contract that they reject and they voted against this contract, but the rest of the international workers around the country voted yes for it, was basically they're setting up an entire sort of weekend crew uh, that's going to work 12-hour days, I guess Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, They're going to get paid for 40 hours, which is a pretty decent deal, but that takes away the ability for the rest of the workers to, uh, to make that overtime. So basically a dedicated weekend crew means that they can't pick up extra hours, you know, when they need to on the weekend. So it's funny, you know, This doesn't seem like the worst contract in the world. It sounds like, as always, it was a negotiation between the union uh, and and the company, Nabisco. But it's funny when you hear Biden and, you know, Democrats and union leaders talking about the union, um, you know, the union, the people that gave you the weekend, right? In this instance, uh, victory is giving away the weekend. Now, what choice do they have? Concessionary contracts, they struck and they probably got what they could. But it's interesting to see what victory looks like uh, in conditions in uh, early 21st century the United States. Uh, things are, even a victory is, is a bittersweet one. Now, another good story comes from the World Socialist website, our Trotskyist friends. And this is from September 13th. And it's about workers at an uh, automotive parts maker called Dana Incorporated. Uh, who are fighting not just against um, the company, right, a a tool and die parts maker, 
in uh, Tennessee outside of Nashville, but also fighting against the concessionary contracts that the United Auto Workers and the United Steelworkers Unions have been pushing, uh, have been bargaining, uh, have been bargaining down for for several decades. I'm going to put a link to this article because it talks about the ways that uh, this particular worker that WSWS has been speaking with about conditions, about how the union has not been able to protect, willing or able to protect workers at this plant from absolutely horrendous conditions, uh, including working in 115 degree heat all day, uh, including um, mandatory 12 hour days, seven days a week uh, for weeks upon weeks on end, basically, um, you know, Dickensian type conditions here. Um, given, you know, given away by the union. Um, so this is interesting because, you know, the UAW, which claims to support the workers, has been forced or has been willing to uh, give up the weekend yet again here. Uh, and workers are, um, are upset. Uh, in fact, so upset that the last time a contract negotiation came down that the UAW had negotiated with the company, it got rejected by 83% of the workers in uh, Paris, Texas says one worker here we pay the union money to protect us to help us and to fight for us and when you're being told quote get ready this is our chance we're going to strike we're going to stick it to them unquote and then literally hours before you're told quote never mind we're going to put an extension on it and you're just going to have to sit type uh, tight and deal with it every single employee every single family member of an employee i've spoken to with feels like this is nothing but a slap in the face this worker continues, we've heard that the United Auto Workers International is talking about making committees to go around to each local to find out what we want from the contract. But we've also heard that they're not going to be allowed to speak to the workers, only the union representatives in the plant. I think it's a facade. I think they're trying to hold us over to make it look like they've been negotiating. The UAW not telling us anything until the last minute is horrifying. They have something to hide. We're familiar with the various corruption uh, scandals in the UAW, union officials stealing millions upon millions of dollars from the rank and file. Uh, that is systemic at this point in time, because as we know, there is this uh, separation, of course, between the union bureaucrats on the one hand and the rank and file on the other. The UAW still being a relatively powerful union, although its numbers, which used to be up in the millions, is down in, I think it's like 300, 400,000 at this point in time. Um, those who work directly for the union uh, can basically bargain these concessionary contracts under great pressure by capitalists. Not like they're doing it on purpose, but with low profit rates, with a lot of with the threat of uh, companies moving production to Mexico or farther afield, uh, the UAW has felt forced uh, in order to, uh, in its partnership with capital, in order to give away more and more and more until we have the situation like in Paris, Tennessee, with the Dana Incorporated, where 83% of workers in this plant are under such horrific conditions that they simply can't take it anymore. They can't take another UAW contract, and it seems like the United Auto Workers in this instance are simply kicking the can down the road. So again, something, um, something to, uh, to keep an eye on moving forward. And uh, thank you to the trots at WSWS.org for this great on-the-ground reportage. Lastly, we have here... Uh, an article from Labor Notes, which I believe, if I'm correct, was also started by Trotz, I think in 1979. I think it might have some relationship to the uh, Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Anyways, they do really, really good work. You should check out labornotes.org if you're uh, a rank-and-file union member or if you are just interested in sort of on-the-ground labor militancy as it exists, because Labor Notes not only goes around and brings information together uh, from various different labor struggles and, uh, you know, on-the-ground on the reports of what things are like in various different industries, but they also have something called the Labor Notes Conference every year, which brings together militants from uh, all over the country, and I think Canada as well, brings people together to discuss the sort of tactics necessary for rank-and-file rebellion to happen. So here's uh, an article by Luis Feliz-Leon from September 15th, 2021. After voting down four tentative agreements, Washington carpenters strike. So in Seattle, California, and let me actually, hold on one second. Let me check to see if the strike is still on. Oh, no, no, this, uh, 
this uh, this strike is definitely still on. Uh, as of today, which is uh, the 20th, I'm reading WSWS.org again here. Washington Carpenters, uh, Washington State Carpenters enter third day of strike, defying union in fight for higher wages. Basically, uh, you had another um, vote, right? This is democracy within the union. The Carpenters Union, as people know, my union in Washington, the local anyways, was negotiating with uh, the General Contractors Association. They put a uh, deal together, and the workers struck it down. Again, members voted down um, the master agreement with the Associated General Contractors on September 11th by 56%. So 2,907 no, 2,282 yes. This is the largest strike since 2003 when 8,000 members went on strike. Right now there's 11,600 carpenters uh, set to be on strike. The problem is, and all of my friends out there who work in construction know there's something called a PLA or a project labor agreement, which is like a special contract for particular jobs. And oftentimes, most of the time, they actually have a no strike clause in them. It's one of the things that capital has demanded and the state has demanded too, because PLAs are often state subsidized projects or infrastructure projects um, to kind of sweeten the pot for themselves by making sure that workers on PLA jobs cannot actually go on strike. But that's not stopping the Washington Carpenters. Uh, Apparently, the way that this agreement was voted down is I think the way that everybody out there, uh, myself included, all rank and file union members or just militants in general should think about things. There was a, uh, a series of groups that were put together on social media, on Facebook, um, on Discord, where basically the rank and file began to uh, communicate amongst themselves. They set up a, uh, a special committee, actually, which was called the Peter J. McGuire Group. Peter J. McGuire, of course, famously was the socialist founder of the uh, United Brotherhood of Carpenters. People might not know this, but Peter J. McGuire was actually, him and, and Samuel Gompers helped form the AFL and the real fight in the early days of the American Federation of Labor as to what extent it would be socialist. And McGuire fought the good fight against Sam Gompers in the late 19th, early 20th century to try to make the famous you know, craft unionism of the American Federation of Labor have a socialist character. Of course, as we know, the AFL went on to be very, very much reformist, very, very much um, business unionist, right? But these rank-and-file workers out here in Washington State are calling themselves beautifully the Peter J. McGuire Group. And they um, put together information. Uh, They communicated with fellow rank-and-file members. They set up a group of militant workers online, um, these solidarity groups, and they were successful in forcing the union to do what had to be done, which is to go on strike. There's a story from, in this article from 2008, and what, what the local had done at that point is, so every single, contra, every single union, typically in Washington State and elsewhere, has their, con, uh, their contract negotiations happen around the same time. And that's because if uh, the, the operating engineers and the carpenters and the plumbers are all bargaining at the same time. It means that if one goes out, then others could go out in solidarity with them. What happened in 2008 was the uh, Carpenters Union officials came to the workers and told them, we have a good deal and the operating engineers have already accepted it, which was a lie. And so the workers in 2008, they voted on the contract and the contract went through. And then after the carpenters had signed the contract, the operating engineers went out on strike for 17 days. And the carpenters missed the opportunity to strike in solidarity with the operating engineers. So the rank and file felt like they were lied to back in 2008, 12 years ago, probably because they were. Well, they didn't make the same mistake this time. They decided to take matters into their own hands. So you had um, basically this agreement, which was only going to give, I think, $2 an hour raises. Uh, and it was going, a lot of the big issue in Seattle, and this is fascinating, we've talked about this on the show, uh, I've talked about this in my experience too, but what's happening in Seattle is very similar to what's happening in New York, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, 
large cities all over the place that have relatively strong uh, construction unions, labor aristocrat unions, uh, because of the gentrification and because capital has saw fit to speculate and invest itself into urban areas, the working class of these places has been basically pushed out farther and farther to where in Seattle, I mean, in New York, I know people who, con- uh, who uh, commute every day from Pennsylvania or way, way, way two hours out in, um, in Suffolk County. In Seattle, the average commute for a carpenter is about an hour. And when they get into downtown, there's like 24 huge, big, you know, construction projects happening. When they get to downtown, they have to pay between 20 and $40 a day in order to park and also about $300 a week in gas. So this is a very sort of, um, I don't know, earthy struggle that's happening right here as people have been pushed out to the periphery and the margins of urban areas are now fighting for capital to pay for them to get to work day in and day out. Is it ideal? No. Should there be like great public transit for them to come in? Sure. Uh, Should we live in a society where capital hasn't been able to flood large cities because the rate of profit's so low that all they can do is speculate and try to hold money, hold on to money and like physical assets like that? No, I mean, this isn't ideal. But this is the terrain on which they're fighting. So they're now three days into this strike. Uh, I think it's very, very interesting to see. And I think the takeaway from this, I think the takeaway from all of these, right, is that as um, as backwards and as business-oriented as unions can be, the only hope for anything positive to happen, the only hope for even something in, like, very basic material terms that's good to happen is for the rank and file to step up. Because given the opportunity, whether it's the United Auto Workers, whether it's the Nabisco Union, whether it's the Carpenters Union, uh, the officials, their livelihood is not affected if they give away concessions. And they can argue, oh, we're just doing whatever we can. But without the power of the rank and file, you're going to give away concessions. You know, you're going to give away worse concessions. And in the Nabisco instance, they kind of won. You know, they won a lot. They certainly got a lot more than they would have if they just laid down and and taken what uh, the company had wanted to give them. Um, But that sort of militancy, of course, not only is good for the day-to-day fighting and winning new contracts, but of course, it's also good in the medium to long term. Because without a uh, working class rank and file fight back in this country, we all know what plans capital has for us. Um, so anyways, I'll put the links to all of these in the show notes. Uh, I think maybe we can make this like a monthly thing. I could do some strike recaps. I don't know. We just had some extra time. I thought it'd be fun. So anyways, thanks, people. And uh, I guess we'll see you next week. I'm the shit, fix the plumbing, Bill with me, y'all, I'm this close, spent my whole life chasing chips, where's Nabisco, my past memories, I miss those, but hey, all I can say is, to get what you wish for, if anybody feeling fresh in the building, take your hand, hold it high to the ceiling right now, and say, damn, I'm killing them, damn, I'm killing them, I know they're feeling me now, and if you're too fresh in the building, take your hand, hold it high, I know they feeling hey, me I'm fresh off my pit stop, no airtight with no zip lock. Get shit poppin' my shit drop. No hip hop, this tip hop. I'm back standing at tip top where I be long, won't be long till you hit me on the BOB song. Shit getting my skeet on. The touch soul of my feet, G, you gon' have to get your reach on. I'm up all the way, high all the way, fly on the grind and I'm off the radar. Burn it made off, money dog. Got killers paid off, flip it all. I got to do for you, place call to get place call to who place call. Make your partner not too hard, I disregard what you say. Back up the truck and pass the Don't play stadium skilled. Hey, how you feel? If anybody feeling fresh in the building?